What about this table over here? Well, I have a question of what is the definition? Mm-hmm. You know where to start? Yeah, that's a good question. We'll be ta- we'll discuss it in depth today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the definition is before I can proceed. Right, yeah. <laughs> if only it were that easy. <laughs> that's good. And yeah, anything else that y'all thought of at your table? There was also a lot. Great. Yeah. Any other thoughts over here? It always is interesting. I'm always curious to see the feel of the room if most people have a negative or a positive view. Because yeah, I think it's usually pretty mixed. So that's good. So what do y'all what do y'all think when you think of like passages of the Bible um, that are the most common that we go to when we think about what does it mean to be a biblical woman? Like what are like kind of those passages we tend to go to? Esther, Proverbs 31. Uh huh. Titus 2. Titus 2. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Proverbs 31 is kind of like the passage that is kind of like if you want to be a, a woman, like a biblical woman, people kind of say to go there. But try to think about it now on the flip side. Like if we're supposed to be imitating the Proverbs 31 women, who is it that men are supposed to be imitating? Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I just say that not to like diminish at all the Proverbs 31 women at all because it's a very, very rich passage. Um, I'm assuming everybody here is probably familiar with it, but if, in case you're not, it's a passage in Proverbs. It's like 20 verses long where it's kind of listing the, pro- the qualities of an excellent wife. And so it's just kind of very clear of like these are qualities of an excellent wife. But, I mean, if you think about it, where do we get to a place in society that when we're thinking about manhood, it's just a natural of like, yeah, imitate Christ. And when we think about womanhood, it's this, well, we're going to imitate this fictional person who doesn't really exist. When really, if you do a quick Google search on, um, like, you know, just kind of imitating Christ, there's, like, dozens of verses, and all of them apply to men and women alike. And so somehow there's some sort of a disconnect. Something has happened where we have kind of started to decide that we're going to take these few passages that speak directly to women, and then we're going to forget about the entirety of Scripture that speaks to women and men together. And I think that we kind of start to do a disservice to women when we do that because we start to kind of put women in a box 
Um, so we, we know there's dozens of verses that tell us to imitate Christ. Do you know how many verses tell us to imitate the Proverbs 31 women? None. It's not even written to women. Like, it's written to a man of what kind of a wife to look for. And so it's saying an excellent, it's like, I think Solomon's mom wrote it. Am I right in that? I don't know. So, so yeah, I mean, it's really, it's 20 verses of Solomon's mom saying, if you want to find a wife, this is what a good wife looks like. So there's nowhere in there that says women try to be this kind of person. That's not really the intent of it. Now, yes, the fact that a man would want to look for those qualities and that's like the wisdom of finding a woman like that, that does tell us that there's value. There's a lot of value to it. It's in the Bible. We want to look at that. But we want to make sure that we're not putting ourselves in this box saying, the Proverbs 31 is my goal instead of Christ is my goal. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I think that the problem is that we as women tend to first set us focus on what is it that sets us apart as men when really – yeah, there's a lot of things that set us apart from men. We are different in a lot of ways, but we need to start with what makes us the same. Because when we start to just focus on the 2% of, this, of the Bible that speaks directly to women and then ignore the rest, that's when we start to kind of like um, put ourselves in these tiny boxes. We leave out these huge important things. And over time, without realizing it, we begin to lower the bar of what women are called to or capable of. And so what I really want to do today is really talk about like first, we're going to spend the first half of the time talking about what is the part of us that is the same. Like, what is the part of the Bible that talks to us as people that we tend to maybe neglect as women, thinking even though we would never say it or we may not even believe that we believe this on some level because of societal norms or things like that, or even within the church, they kind of start to feel like, oh, that's for the men, and I'm going to focus on being the Proverbs. You know what I mean? Like, And so, yeah, one person wrote, all scripture is profitable for all who believe. Men don't get to reap the benefit of searching 98% of the scriptures while women wait quietly to be called upon by the other 2%. I thought that was really good and really strong. So um, there might be some people in here who are maybe like, oh, is this really that big of a deal? I mean, I don't think that I neglect the other 98% of scripture. I don't think I really do this. And like, I don't think any of us would say that we do this or even think that we do this. But I'm just going to give a couple of examples of how this plays out. Um, does it, who in here knows who Jamie Ivey is? She's like a popular podcaster. She interviews people. She's got a, I love her podcast. I listen to it a lot. She's had a couple of times that she's told the same story, and it really stuck with me because I think a lot of women feel this way. But she told this story about one of her kids um, approaching her with a question, and it was kind of a heavier, like, like theological question. And she caught herself saying, oh, that's a question for your dad. You can ask him when he gets home. And then she was like, what am I doing? Like, I am called to train my children. I am called to impart wisdom and scripture to them. I am called to know the scriptures and to give an account for what I believe. And if I can't be, like, why do I think that I have to wait for my husband to come along and do this? I thought that was a really good example of a way that we, as women, tend to start putting ourselves in this box and not applying the commands of scripture to all of us. Um, Another one that I, I was coming, I was researching for this lesson and, this guy was telling the story about how he found he like came across this girl that he had been to seminary with, and they were catching up, and she started telling stories about all of these amazing things that God had done through her ministry. And then she made the comment, yeah, it's just a shame that there was like no good men around to do it, and God had to use me instead. And the guy was like, what? And this is a seminary-trained person. And he said, what? And she goes, yeah, you know, like obviously God would have preferred to use a man, but there just must not have been any of them around. So he had to use second best, you know, and the guy was like, where are you getting this? And she referred back to the book of Judges with the story of Deborah. Who here is familiar with Deborah? Back before there were kings, 
of Israel, Israel was governed by a series of judges. And most of the, all of those judges were men except for one. There was one female judge. Her name is Deborah. And she is portrayed in a very positive way in the scripture. Like she was strong. She was godly. She was the only judge other than Samuel, who was also a prophet or prophetess or however you say it for women. Um, there's nothing about her that was a lot of the judges, you know, maybe weren't portrayed as well. But she was a really good judge. And people have wrestled with what to do with that, like different theologians and stuff have wrestled, and people kind of fall into two camps. Um, And some of them say, oh, well, there was only one. It must have just been because there were no good men that God had to use a woman. And I was actually taught that in college. Like, I was literally taught that exact thing in college about Deborah. And then there's other people who, you know, don't believe that, obviously. But, um, yeah, I think that that's just a way that within the ministry world and people who go to seminary they have this idea that oh well if god's using a woman we're we're kind of we're kind of b team you know like he would really prefer to use a man we're kind of b team you know and i don't think any of us when we say it out loud we're like no but i think that on some level we maybe believe it because it's been taught it's been you know it's been modeled by churches like how many churches um you know really do a good job of showing women leaders and showing women in leadership positions. So another one is I think that there's this idea, spoken or unspoken, in the church that a woman's highest calling is to be a wife and mother. And, I mean, spoiler alert, it's not. It's a very high calling. It's a super high calling. But our highest calling is to fear the Lord. Just this, And that's not gender specific. And so when we start to make these secondary women-only things our primary, we're kind of missing the main thing you know and so that's kind of what starts to it it just feeds into the into this into the stereotype or whatever that women aren't as capable does that make sense so i hope that that kind of like convinces you if you weren't convinced that maybe this is a problem hopefully that kind of helps you see where i'm coming from um it's interesting too to think about the early church because the early church did not have this problem of minimizing the expectations of women it was actually the very opposite I mean, today we have these lower standards of expectations of women, and that has caused our culture to view Christianity as kind of oppressive to women. I mean, I think, I, I think that I hear that a lot of just people outside of the church, they have a problem with thinking things about, I mean, even like most people who aren't Christians, the only scripture that they know that talks about women is wives submit to your husbands. You know, like they have this view that, oh, Christianity, that's so oppressive to women. But in the early church, that was not what was going on. I have this quote, um, this guy named Michael Kruger, who kind of studied this in depth. And he wrote, Christianity was not mocked in the early centuries for being anti-women. It was mocked for being so pro-women. Christianity was made fun of by the cultural elite in the Greco-Roman world because so many Christians were women. And as a result, the elite said, oh, this is a religion for women and children. Um, So clearly there's a disconnect somewhere. Like back then, there was this culture that was incredibly oppressive to women um, Christianity spoke value into women and gave them a high calling and that the calling that reached into eternity. And so why then today do we find ourselves flip-flopped where we're in a culture that values women maybe more than ever before, but they see Christianity as oppressive to women. And so, I mean, I think that maybe it's because we fail to embrace the high callings on our life that God gives us alongside our brothers and not as women first, but as followers of Christ first. And so we've kind of put ourselves in a box So I'm going to start in creation, and just to see the very first thing that we learn about women um, and kind of where that goes. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 and 23. 
I'll just go ahead and read it. And the man gave names to all the cattle, and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now I'm going to read something because I'm a huge fan of Jen Wilkin. Y'all probably know this about me. But she says something about this that I think just explains it so well. Um, And so I'm just going to read it from her because she can say it better than I could. She says, Imagine Adam's state of mind as the animals prayed past him. Ostrich, not like me. Camel, not like me. Alligator, not like me. He becomes increasingly aware that, though surrounded by God's good gifts, he is in a very fundamental sense alone. And then, after a brief nap, Adam awakes, and there she is at last. Adam bursts into poetry. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, because she came from Ish, man. Don't miss what Adam is saying. After the animal parade of one not like him after another, at last he sees Eve and rejoices that she is wonderfully, uniquely like him. Same of my same. Same of my same. She shall be called like me because she came from me. The Bible's first words on man and woman is not what separates them, but what unites them. To make how we are different our starting point is to reinforce the tired idea that men and women are wholly other, an idea that lends itself neatly to devaluing and objectifying, rather than defending and treasuring. It is the very idea that fuels the cultural stereotypes of the incompetent husband and the nagging wife. I push away and discredit what is not like me, and I cling to and elevate what is like me. So I think that she just makes a really good point that when we jump to what makes us different so quickly, but we fail to acknowledge what makes us the same, it's so much easier to begin to devalue each other and to like mock each other for the silly things that you know maybe are annoying or whatever. Instead of embracing what is the same about us and then and really walking in those callings as well. So I want to spend just a couple minutes, um, and then I'll give you guys a few minutes to discuss. We're not going to have as much discussion time as I hope, and that's completely my fault. Um, but some of the areas that I just thought of when I was thinking, okay, so what are these areas, these high callings that we are called to alongside our brothers in Christ? And I've got, I'm going to give each of your guys' table these to kind of talk about more in detail, and they're listed out on here, but feel free to write them down. I'm going to give you eight of them, and these are just, this is not an extensive, exhaustive list. These are just things I thought of. Um, but I think that the first thing is that we're called to bear the image of God along with our brothers. I think a lot of people think, when they're not without realizing it, that man bears the image of God, and then women kind of comes from man. But like, really, God says, like, man and woman, I created them. In the image of God, He created them. And so, like, there's something about man alone that does not fully bear the image of God, and there's something about woman alone that does not fully bear the image of God. But man and woman together bear the image of God. And so I think that that's one thing um, just to remember. I think number two, we are called, along with our brothers, to be a part of God's work of restoration and redemption. When Christ came to the earth, he was all about restoring what was broken from the fall and redeeming people and bringing them back into relationship with God. And God gives us all, as Christians, man and woman, the charge to continue that work of restoration and redemption. We are to be about social justice. We are to be about helping the needy and the orphan and the widow and all of these things. We're to be about reconciling people to Christ. And that's a huge call in our lives that we do not need to diminish. Um, And so I think that that's a really important one. Number three, we're called to make disciples of all nations along with our brothers. 
Are we pouring into women younger than us? Are we training women? Are we helping women to grow in their walk with the Lord? Um, That's a calling that is placed on all believers, not just men. Number four, we're called to love our neighbor. Um, I think that it's really common. I mean, I know I struggle with this. As soon as I had even just one kid, I don't know how people with a lot of kids do this, but even after having one baby in the house, it was just like, oh, I, I can't I can't go and meet my neighbors. I can't go and try to like form relationships. I'm too I'm too busy with my own family now. But but that our, my calling as a mother does not exempt me from my calling to go and do God's work of restoration and redemption and mission and meeting my neighbor and all of these other things. Um, number and I'm sorry that I'm racing through this. I'm trying to make up for lost time. So <laughs> number five, we are called to seek godliness. Are we repenting? Are we trying to grow? Or are we just throwing our hands up and saying, well, this is as good as it gets. Um, number six, and this is kind of my um, soapbox. I'll try not to get too crazy, but we are called to study and know scripture and theology. Um, I think there's certain verses that kind of talk about our study of the word, um, like Psalm 119.11. Let's see. I think I marked it in here so I can get to it quickly. Psalm 119.11, it says, Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against me. And we love those kind of verses because they make us feel really good. I mean, they're psalms. Psalm is poetry. It's supposed to invoke emotion. And so it's easy when we read that and to think about, like, the good feelings that are supposed to well up when we read Scripture. And then it's easy to think that we're hitting the mark when we just maybe – and, again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to throw devotionals under the, under the bus because they have their place, but they don't substitute for actually studying Scripture. So when we read verses like this, it, it's, they feel good, um, and, then, and then we kind of feel like we're hitting the mark as long as we can read a devotional that's maybe two or three sentences every morning, get us in the right mindset. Okay. I'm doing it. But then there's verses. What about verses like 1 Peter 3.15? I'm going to read that one really quick. 1 Peter 3.15 says, um, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And then there is Joshua 1.8 that says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Both of these verses are more instructional in nature. They're actually telling you what you should be doing and how to do it. And when we read verses like that, um, then you start to think, wow, like that's asking, asking a lot more of me. I need to be actually in the... If I'm expected to give a defense for hard questions about my faith, I better be studying this for myself. Like I better be digging in and reading it instead of just reading somebody else's thoughts about it. It's great to have devotionals as a supplement to help you kind of because those those feel good and emotional parts of reading scripture are very important. But some scripture doesn't make you feel good. Some scripture you wrestle with and you're like, wow, like, I mean, I wrestled with certain whole books of like, did God really send these people to massacre? You know, like, I mean, not all scripture makes you feel good. And so I think that there's, we are called to study and know theology if we're going to be obedient to those verses that tell us to be ready to give an account. Number seven, we're called to pursue spiritual gifts. I'm going to read Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. It says, And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. 
And one thing that you'll notice is it doesn't say, let women pursue these gifts and let men pursue these these gifts. Like none of the gifts here, or I think in, is it Corinthians when they're mentioned, different gifts are mentioned. They're never, there's never this line of the gifts that are for men and the gifts that are for women. Gifts are for believers. And so as women, we're called to pursue those gifts. I, I mean, I can tell you flat out that one of the most common conversations that I've had with people when I'm just kind of trying to get to know them and asking, hey, what do you think that your spiritual gifts are? 90% of the time, the answer is, oh, I don't really know. And what that says to me is maybe we don't think we have a whole lot to offer as women. Maybe we think that the gifts that are given to women aren't as important as the gifts that are given to men. And I think that if we can embrace the fact that the gift passages are equally applying to women as to men, and they apply to us just the way they apply to everybody else, and what we have to offer matters and is valuable, I think that we would be more excited to start saying, God, what have you gifted me with, and how can I use it to advance your kingdom? And then last of us, the last one I have is some of us are called to leadership positions, both inside or outside of the church. Deborah was a judge and a prophet. Paul lists so many women in his letters when he's listing the people that he commends for their work to advance the gospel. Um, So leadership positions are calling on some of our lives. Um, And I think that this is an important list because when I think about these things, like... If I could picture a woman who was bearing the image of God, she was working for restoration and redemption, she was making disciples, she was loving her neighbor, seeking godliness, studying the word, pursuing her spiritual gifts, I would be like, wow, that is a godly biblical woman. And none of those qualities are qualities that apply only to women. Those are all just qualities that are called of believers. And so I just wanted to take the first half of our time together to really focus on those things and just to remind you that... um, that we're not little in a box. Like, there's a big calling on our life, and um, we have a lot to offer, and we're valuable. So take about five minutes just to talk about, I'm going to give these to your group, and I'm so sorry, again, that we're not having as much discussion time after I've talked, but then we're going to spend the second half of our time digging into those things that are different. Um, So I'm going to give you guys each one of these to talk about at your tables, and we're only going to have about five minutes. Um, or maybe things that you found and now you're thinking like, oh, maybe I have something like me because of this me or because of the woman or whatever. I'll discount it. So, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> jump now to, okay, we've established that being a woman is more than just the 2% of scripture that addresses women specifically. Um, so what biblically does it mean to be a woman as apart from separate from a man? Like what makes a woman a woman? And there's kind of, you know, traditionally two different kind of approaches to this. Like you've got the feminist approach, which tends to start as the man is the template 
and everything that the man is, now we've got to try to make sure to fight to make sure that the woman can be all those things too, or to make sure that we, everybody knows that a woman can do it even better, you know? But if you think about it, the irony is that's pretty devaluing to women. It's basically saying that a man is the ultimate standard that a woman has to try to attain to, rather than embracing and, you know, like lifting up the qualities that women tend to have. Um, and then similarly, you have the flip side where the Christian tradition, um, like tr- or traditional Christian approach, tends to be, okay, here's what a man is. Again, starting with a man, here's what a man in, is. A woman must be the opposite, or basically, a woman is everything that a man is not. It's almost like a man is all these things, and the woman is the bits that are left over. And either way, it just does an injustice to what the Bible actually teaches about women, like being a woman. And so we're not going to do either of those things today. We're not going to say this is what a man is there for because that's not how scripture presents it. And that, and I don't think that that does justice to womanhood. So what we're going to do is we're just going to start with scripture and we're going to look in Genesis and see what scripture really says about God creating a woman as apart from creating the man. Um, and I'll just be honest. I got this whole section that I'm going to teach from somebody else because he did such a good job teaching it that I basically just stole it all. So I don't want to come across as that this is my ideas. It isn't. Um, this is a guy named Andrew Wilson, and he did a talk on biblical femininity, and it was really, really good. I can send it out if anybody wants to listen to it, and he can go more in depth because he talked for a lot longer than I have time for. But he kind of talks about the four different truths about femininity. Um, he, taught, and he kind of has like the four Ds. Um, he says it's dominion, difference, deception, and destiny. And so we'll go each of those at one at a time. So dominion is the first one, and that's woman as ruler. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read in Genesis. And if you guys just, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, all of these are going to be in the first few chapters of Genesis. But right now I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Um, so what are some things that you notice about that passage? Just call it out. What is God, what is God giving woman to do here? What? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. Uh huh. What else? Rule over it. Yes, there's two parts of this: fill the earth and rule over it. And we tend to, when we think about it, without without meaning to, we think, oh, fill the earth. The woman's going to do that by having babies. Rule over it. The man will do that. But really, God calls both man and woman to fill the earth and to have dominion over it, to rule over it. Nowhere does it say that – I mean there's, there's been cultures and cultures throughout history that have taught there's God and man, and then there's everything that they rule over together, including when women's kind of in this category. But that's not how scripture presents it. Scripture presents it there's God, man, and woman, and then he gives man and woman all of the earth to have dominion over. Like nowhere does it say men are to rule over women. Nowhere does it say women are called to be subject to or inferior to men. Like God's original design and intention was that women would be like, you know, if men are the kings, women are the queens. You know, like we are to co-rule together alongside of each other. And so dominion, I think, is an important one, even though this is one is kind of going with what we were talking about earlier and the fact that, like, it's something that we have in common with men. I think it's important. I'm glad that he put it in his four points because it's one that we tend to 
neglect or ignore or just not believe on some level. Um, But if you look at the entirety of Scripture and the way that women, like biblical women in Scripture act, they live this out. Like this one girl, I love her quote. um, Her name is Erin Smalley, and this was on the Focus on the Family blog. And she said, It may be helpful then to realize that most women in the Bible were not frail and quiet. They were surprisingly bold, and they said what they thought about the issues of their day. They overcame obstacles, they fought through resistance, and they broke through social norms to take a stand for the one they believed in. These were not women of silence, weakness, or passivity. They were impacting their communities and even changing the paths of many around them. Like, to me, this is what it looks like when a woman is acting as somebody who is a ruler and has dominion over the earth. And I think a lot of times we don't see ourselves that way. We kind of see ourselves as these passive participants in in a world that's going on, Instead of somebody who is to have dominion and to rule over the earth and the creation. So I'll just ask yourself the question, like, what would this look like if I were to live out my role as somebody who is to have dominion over this earth? What does that mean? I mean, it's easy to think for Adam and Eve, they were the only ones, you know, like, that means you garden, you grow food, whatever. But like, you know, tamely, I don't know. But um, for us, like, what does that really mean? And so to me, I just would ask myself, like, do I see my contributions and my abilities and my opinions as valuable? And do I think about, am I making an eternal impact on the world? Like, am I doing things that will last for eternity? Am I pouring myself into something greater than my own little life that I've built for myself? But am I living an eternally impactful life? Because if I am, then that's my way of seeing myself as having dominion over the earth. I'm going to leave my mark. Does that make sense? So, yeah, are my living as somebody who has been assigned with having dominion? Like, am I taking that calling seriously? Or am I living like what I have to con- contribute doesn't really matter? So that's number one. That's women as ruler. Um, the number two is women as helper. And I think that he put for his D's, that was the difference one. Because um, this is the first time we see a way that we're different than men. So I'm going to read a verse. This is Genesis 2, verse 18. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And like when we hear the word helper, how many of us are like, yes, that word is so uplifting. <laughs> like, I mean, most of us hate that verse. Like it sounds terrible and it makes us feel so inferior, you know. Um, but a lot of the reason we feel that way is just a language thing. Like it's not the original intention. Like, we hear this word helper, and we kind of have this 1950s picture of, like, all the men in a smoke-filled room, and we're going to go give them their coffee and file their papers for them. And, you know, like, it's, it's, it's such a demeaning picture that we have in our minds. So I think it's helpful to go back to the biblical view of this word and the original language. Um, there are 21 occurrences of the Hebrew word for helper in the Old Testament. And only two of them refer to women. They're both in Genesis 2. But of the remaining 19, 16 of them refer to God. So I'm going to read some of these to you. This is the same word for helper that applies to women. This is God using it of himself. So I'm going to read some from the Old Testament first. Psalm 10:14 says, To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Psalm 54:4 says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 118.7 said, The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Here's a few from the New Testament. John 14.16 And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And that helper is referring to the Holy Spirit. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. That's also in John. Um, 
And then Hebrews 13, 6 says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Um, so the Bible clearly uses this word helper not to describe this, this like, um, unimportant servant um, or the second-class person, but, like, it's somebody coming to the rescue, somebody bringing hope and deliverance. Um, it's such a high calling. And it would be foolish of us to think that we are above being helpers when God uses that word to refer to himself. Like, I mean, how would we think that we are above that if God, you know, confidently calls himself our helper? And it's such a, it's a noble and it's a high calling, an honorable word, not a demeaning one. So something I think we can be asking ourselves, just thinking, okay, sure, I can get on board with this now that I understand what it is. Like, how do we assess, like, what does that look like for us? Like, how do I know? Am I living out my calling as a helper? So some questions you might ask yourself is, am I just settling for the culture's view of helping? Like, on either side, am I... Settling for, oh, the most I can contribute is, is you know, offering the support or getting the coffee or whatever. Or am I, have I been so fed up with that that I just rejected this idea altogether? So either way, you're settling for the culture's view of helping. Or am I using my unique calling as a helper to, an imp- to improve and to empower those around me to co- become better and more effective? Like, do I make things better wherever I go? Because that's what a helper does. That's what God does. He he saves us when we're helpless. Like, am I recognizing areas of need that I could step in and save, you know? Like, am I doing that? And so, yeah, I think, like, asking ourselves the question, am I living out this in my own context? Am I acting as a helper? Um, and, you know, it's easy to think about this, like, in marriage, but it applies, I think, when you're not married also. I think we can still live this out. So number three, this is the deception one. This is woman as sinner. This is not necessarily reflecting God's good design for women, but more reflecting the corruption of God's design for women because we were given a different curse than men. So we're going to look at this as well. So I'm going to read Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then later on in Genesis 3.16, it says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So that's the curse that was given to woman when she ate of the tree and sinned. So there's kind of two ways that this curse plays out for women. Um, one, because so, so I'll read this part. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So what does that mean? Like, how is that cursing us? Like, what does that really look like? And I've heard it explained two ways, and I've always, like, thought, oh, so which one is it? But this this guy listed them both and kind of said they both apply. So we're just going to take that approach today. Um, so the first one is that this idea that women tend to struggle with having the desire to find their deepest level of fulfillment and satisfaction in men. I mean, this starts when we're little girls, and all we can think about, we go boy crazy, and then we think about our wedding, and then in college, like, dating becomes this, like, big, huge, massive thing, because we're thinking about marriage all the time, and it can be distracting, and then when you're married, especially newlyweds, it's like, your whole world is your new, this new marriage you have, and so I think that women struggle to find their deepest level of fulfillment and satisfaction in men. It plays out later in marriage when you realize that your husband's not Jesus, and you just kind of get really resentful and angry and fall apart. You know, like I think that there's just different ways that this looks in different stages of life. Then the other way that this plays itself out is um, kind of more of more having to like dig into the language a little bit. Um, it's kind of a desire to rule over men because um, almost the exact same language is used in Genesis 4 when God is speaking to Cain. So like Cain is one of Adam, Adam and Eve's kids and he's like, you know, wanting to sin. 
And, and the Bible says, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. So that same word for you must rule over that sin is the same word here um, in Genesis when it says your desire shall be for your husband. It's really like will be over your husband to rule over your husband. It's kind of like what it's saying. So like really women, another struggle we have, especially when we get married, is this desire to kind of, um, you know, like this whole desire that God has given men the roles to like lead their families. Women have this desire to kind of like cut the legs out from under their husbands and be like, I can do this better. You're not doing a good enough job. Like let me take, and like taking control all the time and struggling with building our husbands up, but really kind of in a, in a underhanded way, kind of maybe without realizing it, tearing them down by saying like, you're not leading well enough. Let me do this. And so it kind of plays it out in two ways. It's, but really the overarching thing is it's hard for us to accept our role that we were given because we see this idea that men have been given this like role of kind of leading their families. In our minds, there's now a hierarchy. Like he's leading, now we're under him. But really like the heart of like men leading the families is like more of a protection. Like it's you're, they're called to protect and to lay down their lives for us. Um, and that's not an I'm above you kind of role. That's like a I'm going to protect you and look out for you because you're my you're, – we're on, you know, you're my people or whatever. And, um, yeah. And so I think that it's when we start getting into this mindset of like, oh, well, this means I'm inferior. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I can do a better job than him. And so I think that's kind of how the curse plays itself out. So kind of going back to what does this mean for us today? How do we know if I am like suffering the effects of the curse? Like, am I like living in the curse right now? Some of the questions we could ask ourselves are, am I too focused on the opposite sex, like either focused on my relationships or lack thereof with men? Um, am I focused on trying to like control men? Am I constantly either in, on cloud nine because of like this guy in my life or maybe it's my husband or whatever, or am I constantly miserable because my husband's driving me crazy? Like either way, like your world is wrapped up in this man. And so that's a good sign that like you're walking in like the curse, you know, like you're not walking in your calling, but you're walking in the curse. You're letting the, your desire to find your satisfaction and fulfillment in a man stop you from finding it in Jesus and in living out the callings that he has on you. Are we too consumed with trying, if, if, we're, if we're married, um, are, do I make my husband a better leader or am I too consumed with trying to grab the reins from him and not trusting his leadership? Um, and then the fourth one um, is women as life giver. Women as life giver, that's the destiny one. And so I'll say just right off the bat, this does not just mean having babies. There's a lot more to being a life giver than having babies, but that is part of it. Um, and so we'll just kind of go through this. What's the D for that? Uh, destiny, sorry. So Genesis 3.20 says the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Hebrew word for Eve means life giver. Um, so God brings gospel life through the woman. Um, just as the way that the world falls in a man, Adam is the one, even though Eve eats the fruit, God holds the man responsible. God like goes to Adam and says, what, what did you do? You know, like, and, um, and so the world falls in a man, man, Adam through a woman, Eve, in the same way, the world is redeemed and given life in a man, Jesus through a woman, Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. And so, um, the woman is the life giving force that brings forth Christ, um, and so is life giving only about having children? He kind of puts it as like a no, but. And so we'll first start with the no, and then we'll get to the but. But um, the no is that Eve's identity as a life giver comes before she ever had any children. Like Adam saw her and laid eyes on her and named her Eve. Like just something about being a woman 
it is associated with being a giver of life. And there was no children yet. Like, I don't even know if they knew what babies were, you know? Like, I mean, I don't know how it all worked back then. But, um, but yeah, like, so she wasn't, she, it's not like she had a baby. And, and Adam said, I will now call you the giver of life. But he saw her and called her life giver before she had any children. Um, and then her primary way of being a life giver in the story is the way that she brings hope to the world through the gospel. Like the emphasis isn't about her having children in general. It's more on the fact that she's going to bring forth the savior of the world, like the one who's going to be the snake crusher. Um, and so, so yeah, I think we can all be life givers when we are, when we are, you know, speaking kingdom truths to people. And so that's really important. Also, the Bible gives multiple examples of women who didn't have children who were life giving, um, and like there was many women who were barren or single and, um, like there's blessings spoken on barren women and like, you know, I think Isaiah maybe is where it talks about how like your fruit will outnumber, you know, those who do have kids because of the fact that when you don't have kids, there's so much, you have much more time to like be, you know, doing ministry. And, um, there were a lot of women in Paul's lists in his books, like in his letters, he's always listing women as, and like commending them for their contributions for like, um, advancing the gospel. And so obviously it's clear from the whole entirety of scripture that you don't have to have bring brought forth children into the world to be a life giver. Um, it looks a lot of different ways. Um, but the way that the buck comes in is for 80% of women, having physical children will be a major part of your life and purpose. And we live in a culture that doesn't really view life giving by bearing children the same way that God does. Like our culture tends to really devalue motherhood and children. It's kind of seen as a lesser thing. Um, a lot of people view children as um, bad for the planet, expensive, they're a nuisance, you know, like my career is more important. Um, that's kind of the mindset of our culture. Um, and so I'm going to read this other quote because um, people just have a way of saying things that's better than I could. So I'm reading you a lot of quotes. Um, but this was written by a girl named Rachel Jankovi. And she said, children rank way below college, below world travel for sure, below the ability to go out at night at your leisure, below honing your body at the gym, below any job you may have or hope to get. In fact, children rate below your desire to sit around and pick your toes if that's what you want to do, below everything. Children are the last thing you should ever spend your time doing. Christian mothers carry their children in hostile territory. When you're in public with them, you're standing with and defending the objects of cultural dislike. You are publicly testifying that you value what God values and that you refuse to value what the world values. You stand with the defenseless and in front of the needy. You represent everything that our culture hates because you represent laying down your life for another. And laying down your life for another represents the gospel. Our culture is simply afraid of death. Laying down your own life in any way is terrifying. But a Christian should have a different paradigm. We should run to the cross, to death. So lay down your hopes, lay down your future, lay down your petty annoyances, lay down your desire to be recognized, lay down your fussiness at your children, lay down your perfectly clean house, lay down your grievances about the life you are living, lay down the imaginary life you could have had by yourself, let it go. Death to yourself is not the end of the story. We of all people ought to know what follows death. The Christian life is a resurrection life, life that cannot be contained by death, the kind of life that is only possible when you have been to the cross and back. So thought that was really well put. Um, and so, um, yeah, just to think about the fact that while you don't have to bear children to be a life giver, bearing children is a very important high calling. I think motherhood tends to fall into like one of two categories that are both bad. Like I know I swing between these two things all the time. Like half the time I feel like, oh my gosh, motherhood's the highest calling of my life. Nothing else matters. All that I can do is over here. You know, like I'm just going to like 
snuggle jacks and make sure I'm the best mom in the world and I'm not going to do any. And obviously, from the first half of my lesson, I don't think that that's the right answer. Like, I don't, it's a, it is a high calling, but it is not the highest calling on my life. So sometimes I forget the fear of the Lord and carry out his message to the nations because I've replaced this calling instead. Um, but then a lot of times I'll swing to the other side and I'll be like, what am I even doing with my life? Like, I'm wiping boogers all day long, you know, and it can just feel like, I kind of fall into this cult, like this world, you know, like I'm doing something less important. And that's not true either. We need to learn to look at having children in like a gospel view of like, this is a picture of the gospel and it's a high calling and I am shaping lives that could one day shape, you know, change the future. And I am making little disciples and my children are a part of my ministry. They're probably the biggest part of my ministry especially when they're little and they take all my, you know, so much of my time. But we just need to make sure that we're not running to either of those extremes, if that makes sense. Um, so what is, I'll wrap up because I know we've gone over. Um, what does this mean for us, this being a life giver? What are the questions I can ask myself to see, am I walking out this calling on my life? Um, the first thing is, like, life-giving is something women do because they are women. And this ultimately happens in and through the gospel. So am I giving life by speaking the gospel to people around me? Like, am I sharing the gospel with people? Am I sharing Christ with non-believers or with, or with believers by speaking gospel into their hearts when they're struggling? You know, there's so many ways you can talk the gospel to people's hearts. It doesn't have to just be non-believers. Um, second, do our words to those close to us, closest to us bring life? Or do they make people feel small? Like, am I a life-giving presence in my home? Um, am I a life-giving presence, um, you know, to my husband, to my children, to my friends, in my class, at school, to my parents? Like, am I just generally a life-giving presence? Or am I maybe a life-sucking presence? <laughs> um, and then for moms, do I downplay the value or importance of raising my children and feel like it's not an important calling? Or do I recognize the enormity of what God has entrusted me with? So... Um, so those are just some questions to assess. I was hoping to have time for you guys to like discuss all four of those groups of questions, but clearly we're already like eight minutes over. Totally my fault again. I'm so sorry. Um, but I would like for you guys to just take those questions home as homework maybe and just start to like, I mean, and if you weren't able to write them all down, um, feel free. I'll have a piece of paper up here. If you just want to write your email address, I'm happy to like email you all the discussion questions and it has a lot of those main points so that just something to journal about. Because um, I really do think that it's important for us to, to not um, minimize the high calling that God has on our life and to be walking in these roles as being a helper and a ruler and a life giver, you know, and not walking in our um, the curse that was placed on us or in the cultural lies that tell us that we're less important. So, yeah. Um, so in the interest of time, I'm just going to pray, but then I'm going to stick up here for questions instead of, you know, doing question and answer right here. Um, and then, yeah, feel free to come and ask questions afterwards. So, dear Lord, thank you so much for giving us this time um, just to talk about what does it mean to be a woman. And I hope that after this and after digging into all of these different ideas and scriptures that everybody here has changed if they had maybe a negative view of what biblical womanhood it was to now having a positive view and to realizing that it is a high calling and that um, you expect a lot out of women and you value a woman's contributions and we should be excited to be following you. Um, and so God, I just pray that you would help us to walk out of here feeling empowered and feeling um, excited, pressed towards you in one direction or another. Lord, I pray that everybody in here would feel you 
nudging them um, towards growth in, in one area, Lord, whatever that could be. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Sorry again for being so late. I know. You're fine. I'm the worst. <laughs> uh, yes. Let me find that one. Rachel Jankovi. J-A-N-K-O-V-I. I don't even know who she is. I just found this quote, or I read a blog post, and it was super good. Yeah. Have you read? Has she read? What she write? What did she write? Yeah. Do you remember what they're called? I might look her up.